In part four, test number 10 for your notes is the purpose test. It is the purpose test. Now keep in mind, we've already gone through nine character tests of life. We've already gone through a lot. So we've gone through 20 years of growing with Jesus till we get to this test number 10, the conclusion. If I were to line all of you up in the door or somewhere and talk to you for several minutes, each one of you, if I were to draw things out of your heart and ask you questions and say, why did you marry this person? Why did you go to college here? Why did you take this job? Why do you play this sport? Why is this your passion? The very foundation of the answer of all of those questions would be because I want to know my purpose. You don't realize it, but subconsciously the choices you make all through life, even as a child, were I want to find fulfillment. I want to find the reason that I'm on earth. I want to know why I was born in the time I was born. Did my parents just get together and that's why I'm here or is there a purpose for me? Am I breathing oxygen because God has something he wants me to do or am I just wasting space? What is the reason for my existence? Is there a plan for my life? Is there a purpose from the creator of the universe for me? Or am I just one in several billion people that just happen to show up? Here's the answer. Yes, there's a purpose for your life. Yes, there's a specific plan that God has for you. He is a purposeful God. He is not a purposeless God. Everything he makes has a purpose. It says in Proverbs 16, 4, everything the Lord made has a destiny and a purpose. He has a purpose for, the, for every molecule that's been created. And if he has a purpose for every molecule and every animal and a purpose for the solar system and the sun and the moon, you better believe he has a purpose for you because he sent his son not to die for the sun, not to give his spirit to the animals. He sent his son to die and to give his spirit to you and me. There's a purpose for your life. I can promise you, uh, once you discover that purpose, you'll have so much ease in life because it'll be easy to say no to certain things and easy to not pursue certain things and easy to not be worried or anxious about certain things when you know what your purpose is. And I dare say that many of you have been seeking this fulfillment, this reason for life from the wrong sources, the wrong people, the wrong places. You think that money will fulfill you. You think that um, if someone will love you, that will fulfill you. You think that if you can find somebody you can love, that will fulfill you. And those things are fine, but that's not your purpose. There's a specific reason God gave you the personality he gave you, the gifts he gave you, the talents he gave you, the creativity he gave you. There's something he needs you to accomplish on planet Earth. So for your notes, point number one is this. Satan knows you have a purpose. I want to make it very clear to you before we really get into the thick of things that even the devil himself knows you have a purpose. Since you were in your mother's womb, the enemy has been trying to do all he can to stop you from fulfilling the purpose God has for your life. You've been a target to the enemy since the day you were conceived. He actually probably tried to take out your mom and dad so you would never be born. Um, uh, every car wreck you've been in, every fire you've been through, every disappointment, every friend that's turned their back on you, every financial upset, um, every time you were mischaracterized in life, every time you were gossiped about, um, every, every temptation that you went after, every negative thing that's ever happened, it's because you scare the hell out of Satan. Or should I say you scare the hell into Satan? Anyway, you scare him to death. You scare him to death. There's something about your life that scares him. So he's been trying to stop it ever since you were a child. Every suicidal thought, every day of insecurity, every addiction you faced, every depression you've been through, every negative thing in life is because Satan's trying to stop you. Why do you think that Joseph's brothers tried to murder him? 
I mean, he definitely did not deserve that. Then they decided to throw him in a pit. Then they sell him as a slave. Then as a slave, he's accused of a crime he doesn't commit. Then he gets sent to prison for doing nothing wrong. Then when he helps somebody, they forget all about him when they get out of prison. Why did this happen? Because Satan's plan is to stop your purpose. He is threatened by your life. He's threatened by your destiny. He's threatened by what you have to offer this world. Many times, Satan knows who we are before we even know who we are. In 1 Samuel 16, 12, the Lord told Samuel, David is the one, arise and anoint him. David was anointed to be king as a child, but after that happened, he went straight back into the shepherd's fields. But here's my question. Why did David's father completely reject him? Why did David's brothers pick on him when he was bringing them food when they were hanging out with the Israeli army? Why did a lion and a bear come after the sheep when David was in charge? Why did a giant belittle him in front of thousands of people? Why did a woman begin to bathe on the rooftop of her house right next to David's palace on the one night he was supposed to be in battle but decided to stay home and be lazy? Why did his own son try to kill him and overthrow the kingdom? It's because Satan knew that David was anointed with a purpose. And every Sunday we say out loud, I am anointed. God's got a plan for my life and I will fulfill my destiny. Why do you think Satan's after you since you were a child? Why do you think every negative thing that's come against you has happened? You think, well, I'm just average. I'm just but No, you're anointed by God with a purpose. If you don't fulfill your purpose, this world will not be what it could have been. There's something he's called you to do. Your purpose is more powerful than the enemy's plan. And this wasn't in my notes, but Greg, Greg, where are you at? Raise your hand, Greg. I know you're in here somewhere. There you, uh, listen, so he, let me tell you, he, is, he has not had one single year of his entire life since 1983 that he has not been on drugs. But November the 29th of this year will be the first time since 1983 that he's gone one year without any drugs. And he's been in church every Sunday. And he's going to Bible college. Do you know why that's happened to him since 1983? Because God's got a purpose for his life. Because he's anointed and he's figuring that out right now. Um, Acts 13.36 says this. Uh, David completed God's purpose for his life and then he died. That's my dream for every one of you. I don't want you to die having not fulfilled the purpose that God has for your life. If David ran from rejection, he'd be running from his destiny. If he ran from Goliath, he'd be running from his calling. If he ran from his sin, his mistakes, if he ran from uh, all the negative things in life, he'd be running from the very thing that God was trying to use to prepare him for the very reason that he's on earth. God can take every negative thing that's ever happened in your life and weave it through this beautiful and intense plan to get you where he wants you to be. There's a fight going on for your future every second that you're alive on earth. You can't even see it right now. In the spirit realm, there's angels and demons warring over you and your children right now. Uh, you have no idea how many times God has sent an angel in your path to help you out. You have no idea how many times God has protected you from an accident. God stopped somebody from destroying you. You have no idea how many times God's been there to try to get you to where you're at. And I believe He calls you to be in this church today to hear this message. I think everything in your life has prepared you for this day. I'm surprised the electricity doesn't go out. I'm surprised... I'm surprised the church doesn't burn down right now because Satan is so mad 
to hear, for you to hear that God has a plan for you. Why do you think Noah faced a flood in having to build an ark with no Home Depot and no Lowe's anywhere around? Why do you think Moses had to battle against his stepfather, the man that raised him and is now trying to kill him? Joshua ended up in a land filled with giants. Ruth's husband died. Rahab had to decide between lifelong friends and God's people. Daniel was thrown in a lion's den. Shadrach was thrown in the fire. Samson was tempted every day of his life. And Jesus battled death, hell, and the grave. And here's why. The bigger the problems, the bigger the purpose. The bigger the problem. Listen, I feel sorry for some of y'all that have had an easy life. I feel sorry for those of you that have never been sick. You've never had financial trouble. Everybody's loved you and you're always so popular. I feel sorry for y'all. But those of you that have a lot of problems like me, we got a big destiny before us. There's something amazing God wants us to do. The bigger the problems, the bigger the purpose. Everything in your life has been to prepare you for what God has for you. Nothing's been wasted. God never wastes a single thing. Everything, God had a purpose for it. The greatest scripture in the entire story of Joseph from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 is in Genesis 50 verse 20. The greatest scripture of the whole story of Joseph says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good in order to bring about this day to save many people. It doesn't say evil things happen to you, but God has a good plan. It says the evil things that happen to you, God's going to scoop up those things and use them to promote you. Use them to thrust you forward. Use them like a catapult to get you where he wants you to be. The very thing that's been trying to defeat you is the thing God's going to use to prepare you. God used Joseph's pride to get him in the pit. God used Joseph's pit to get him in prison. He used Potiphar to get him uh, underneath Pharaoh. God used everything negative that happened in Joseph's life to get him to be second in command to Egypt. And that's why Joseph could say, everything evil that happened in my life actually got me to where I was. You know, the Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. It doesn't say no weapon will be formed against you. It says that the weapons that are formed against you will not prosper. I, um, I grew up thinking that there was something terribly wrong with me. Um, for many, many years as a child, even in my teenage years, I thought that somehow I must be like a spawn of Satan or something like that because so many bad things kept happening. I mean, as a child... I probably had the worst childhood you could imagine because I was hurt growing up by Christian people in church. Like that was the, I mean, if you're going to be hurt, like let an atheist hurt me or something, right? Let some agnostic devil worshiper, but not a Christian. That's the worst. And I grew up hating Christians. And then in high school, I got in fights all the time. I was either running from an enemy or running to an enemy to do something really, really ungodly to somebody. And and I had my first child at 16 years old, out of wedlock. Um, I went to jail twice. I was a felon by 17. Uh, I've been through a divorce. I've had so much loss. So many, I probably have more problems and more sin and more bad things than all of y'all put together. But here's the funny thing. Out of every church in Myrtle Beach y'all could go to today, y'all are here and I'm the one that's preaching to y'all. So if I got problems, y'all really got problems today. <laughs> It's because God's got such a great purpose for you. Everything that's happened has brought you to this place. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, A wide door of opportunity has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. The reason there's many adversaries 
is because God has been fighting for you your entire life. Since the day you were conceived, God has been going to battle to try to save you, get you to be one of his children, and get you to find and fulfill your purpose. Um, there's, a, there's a word, the word type and shadow are theological words that mean um, example. So if you ever hear a, a pastor or a theologian say, well, type and shadow, it literally means example. Uh, Joseph is a type and shadow of Jesus. In other words, there are many people in the Old Testament that are examples of the Messiah of Jesus in the New Testament. So I want to read you some ways how Joseph is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. And you can listen to it later and write it down. Joseph was stripped of his robe. Jesus was stripped of his robe. The Midianite traders bought Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Then they sold him for a profit in Egypt. And, the, and, and history tells us that Egyptian slaves were 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was also sold for 30 pieces of silver. When the Midianite traders came to buy Joseph, they were carrying three things, the Bible says, balms, spices, and myrrh. In John chapter 9, when they came to embalm the body of Jesus, the Bible says they were carrying three things, balm, spices, and myrrh. Joseph was betrayed by his brother Judah, who decided to murder him out of all the brothers. Jesus was betrayed by his disciple Judas. In Hebrew is the exact same word. Joseph was arrested and chained up, though he did nothing wrong. Jesus was arrested and chained up, though he never did anything wrong. Joseph was specifically numbered between two prisoners. Remember the baker and the butler? I told you about them. One was condemned and the other one was restored. Jesus was numbered specifically between two prisoners. One was condemned. The other one was restored and in heaven that day. Joseph uh, told the butler, remember me when you get out of here and you're promoted. Uh, the thief on the cross told Jesus, remember me when you get out of here and you're promoted. Uh, Joseph was thrown into a pit. Ephesians says that Jesus went down to the pit. Joseph became second in command to basically the whole world when he finally reached his destiny. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. Here's the point. The enemy does not fight us for where we are. He fights us for where we're destined to be. He does not fight us for where we are. He fights us for where we're destined to be. The, the things you went through when you were in your teenage years, it wasn't for who you were in your teenage years. It was for what God was calling you to do. The things you're going through right now in your marriage, in your life, at work, in your health, it's not because of where you are right now. It's because Satan knows you're going to end up somewhere great if you stay faithful. If you stay the course and keep doing like you're doing, Satan knows you're going to end up at your destiny and he's going to do everything he can to stop it. Point number two is this. Satan knows your purpose, but here's this. God knows your purpose. Satan knows you have a purpose. God actually knows your purpose. Jeremiah 20 and 11, we say it every Sunday, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, are to prosper you and give you a future. And Psalms 119, says, the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. Um, your destiny begins with the word of God. If you want to start the path that leads you to your purpose, you got to start the path in the word of God. You have to, have to, have to, have to get in the word. The word will tell you that God's plan for your life is healing Health, joy, passion, abundance, on and on it goes. Wisdom, creativity. He wants you to be free of worry. He wants you to have a great marriage. you got to know that God's Word is the foundation of your destiny. you got to get in the Word. Get in Sunday school, short groups, whatever it takes, get in the Word. 
Now, I want to tell you a, a biblical story. You know, this is my favorite part of the sermon, but it's going to take a lot of brain power for you to get it. So to help you out, I even have a whiteboard just in case you need it. OK, so I want to tell you about a guy named Cyrus in the Bible. Cyrus was a Persian king. Everybody say boo. But yeah, that's the Persians. Boo. They were not godly people. They loved money, fame, and fortune. Nothing wrong with money, fame, and fortune, but they loved it. That was the problem. They did not worship God. And Cyrus became king one day over Persia. And while he's king, the Israelites are actually enslaved to them. Okay? Persians are in control of the world at the time. But 2 Chronicles 36, 22 says, In the first year of Cyrus... In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he proclaimed, Thus says Cyrus, God chose me to build him a church or a house or a temple in Jerusalem. Okay, what in the world calls this ungodly, evil, money-loving king who is not a Christian, who does not serve God, who actually has God's people in bondage, what caused him in his first year of reigning to stand up in front of the whole world and say, I found my purpose, everybody. God's called me to build a church. I'm so excited. Everything in my life has led up to this. The money that I've been storing up, the, the, the influence that I have, the position I have, everything. I finally figured out I'm supposed to build God a church. How did that happen? One day, you know, Daniel, Daniel, the lion's den, Daniel is enslaved in Persia. One day, Daniel goes to the king and says, can I read you something in the Bible? It was written 150 years before Cyrus, and it's from the prophet Isaiah. So Daniel gets the Holy Scrolls, he gets the prophecies of Isaiah, and he goes to Cyrus and he reads in Isaiah 44, 28, where God said, I say of Cyrus, he is my, what's that word? I thought he was a king. And it's a shepherd, that's the low, listen, that's the lowest on the totem pole. But God said, you're my shepherd. And God said, you're going to do what I say. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will be restored for I've spoken it. Isaiah 45, 4, the Lord said to his anointed. Wait, anointed? I thought this guy's an atheist. I thought he didn't serve it. He's anointed? Cyrus, I have called you, Cyrus the Great. I named you even when you did not know who I was. Why would those scriptures cause Cyrus' entire life to turn around? Okay, here's why. So, the grandfather at the time is the king. Okay, he's king before Cyrus. Now, his name is not pertinent to the story because it's a really weird Bible name that you'll never remember. So, the grandfather's king. The grandfather has a son named Cambyses I. Cambyses I has a son named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, who we're talking about. Cyrus's son is named Cambyses II. Now, if you were a betting person, wouldn't you say that Cambyses I's son should be named Cambyses the second? Why in the world would it go from Cambyses the first to Cyrus to Cambyses the second? Well, here's why. When Cyrus was born, his grandfather had a dream the day before he was delivered from his mother. The dream was that his grandson would come into power and overthrow the kingdom and start using all this power, influence, and money to do something for the Israelites' God. So the grandfather got so upset, he told his servant the day Cyrus was born, he said, I want you to take my grandson out in the woods and kill him. So the servant's obedient. He takes the baby, Cambus is the first child. He goes out to the woods to kill him. And when he's out there in the woods, he hears some rustling over there next to him in the forest. He looks and there's a young couple, a shepherd and his wife, and they're bearing their stillborn child. 
And so the servant's holding this lively, healthy baby, a little boy, just like the one they buried. And he thinks, oh my goodness, I can't go through with it. So he runs over to him and he says, I see you're burying your stillborn. Would you like to raise this child? Just take him, no, ask no questions, just go about your life. They said, yes, we'd love to. And they take the baby and they leave. So the servant takes the dead baby from that couple, goes back inside the palace and tells the grandfather, King, I did what you said. I killed your grandson. This shepherd and his wife decide to name their new baby Cyrus. For 10 years, they raise him to be a shepherd, just like his adopted father is. So every year for the next 10 years, the grandfather, every day on Cyrus's birthday, the grandfather goes into uncontrollable mourning and depression for weeks at a time. For 10 years, this happens. So one day the servant comes into the palace and says, listen, king, I see that you go through this every year. I don't know if this is good news. I don't know if this is bad news, but I got to tell you the truth. Your grandchild is not dead. He's still alive. The king asked for the grandchild. He said, well, hold on. His name's Cyrus. He's a shepherd. He's 10 years old, but I'll go get him if you want me to. The grandfather says, yes, bring him to the palace. So they bring the shepherd boy to the palace. He has no idea who he is. They tell him, you're royalty. Now you get to live here. Many years later, the dream comes to pass. And he overthrows his grandfather, who's a very evil king, takes all the money, all the wealth, all the kingdom. And one day he hears where God said 150 years before, I named you Cyrus. You're my shepherd. And the plan for your life is to build me a church. And that is why Cyrus could say with such conviction God knew me before I was even born. He had a purpose for my life before my parents ever even got together. And that's why I'm going to build the church of God. If you want to know your purpose, you got to get to know the one who created your purpose. If you want to know the reason you're alive today, you got to spend time with the very one that gave you life. Can you believe 150 years before God said, I named you. You're my shepherd. I knew you personally, and I have a plan for you. So here's point number three. Do you know your purpose? Do you know your purpose? And I bet you're thinking I'm going to give you some kind of general answer, like, oh, your purpose is to be nice to people. <laughs> no. The question we have in our minds is, can I discover my specific purpose? I mean, the number one most important reason that I am a child of God and that I'm alive, can I know that? And the answer to that question is yes. yes. Of course you can. Uh, it says in Genesis 45, 6 through 8, this is when Joseph finally realized his whole life was put together like a puzzle. Do not be grieved because you sold me, when he's talking to his brothers, for God sent me here to save lives and preserve our family. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And God made me a ruler to Pharaoh and over all of Egypt because God sent me here to save lives. In that moment, Joseph finally realized his it took him it took him from 17 to his 40s. Finally he's in his 40s and he realized everything in my life is because of this specific purpose. Here's what's very important about this. God did not reveal this specific purpose until after years of Joseph ministering with his gift. Remember, Joseph had the gift of administration and organization. Remember, 
he was in uh, the Potiphar's house and he used his gift faithfully and he got promoted. He went to prison. He used his gift faithfully. He got promoted. He stood before Pharaoh. He used his gift and he got promoted. After years of using the gift that God gave him to help people, he finally was revealed his specific purpose on planet Earth. Using your gift opens the door to your purpose. Using your gift will open the door to your... And you know, this, this isn't in the Bible, but I, I bet, I bet if you found the pit that they threw Joseph in, I bet it was the most organized pit you've ever seen in your life. Because everywhere he went, he used his gift. So, how can I discover my gift if my gift opens the door to my purpose? I'm glad you asked. You all have a very, very large handout that I spent countless hours working on, so you better do the work and fill it out. I mean, I spent countless, countless nights like crazy. So, in Romans chapter 12, and you can read it sometime this week, you'll see the seven gifts of grace, or the motivational gifts. This is written to members of churches, and everybody has a gift of grace. This is, the gift, this is not the fivefold ministry gift. This is a gift to every single believer. Um, I used words, as you'll see on the front page, that help you understand the gift rather than some of the King James words. For instance, the first gift mentioned in the King James Bible is the gift of prophecy. That is not the gift of the prophet. It's different. The gift of the prophet is past, present, future. The gift of prophecy is um, writing wrongs with truth. It's a, a proclaimer of truth or a motivator. Okay, so there's the seven gifts. Turn the page to page two. At the top of page two, it's the back of page one. See where it says, if Pastor John Paul dropped the dessert on the floor? Everybody see that? Okay, so if I drop the dessert on the floor, here are the gifts in action. Okay, here's the gifts in action. The motivator says, well, that's what happens when you're not careful, because they're trying to correct the present. The server says, oh, let me help you clean it up. They're the first ones to clean it up. The teacher says, well, the reason it fails is because it was too heavy on one side. Next time, you should equally distribute the weight. And then they probably tell a 20-minute story of how they dropped a dessert years ago and explain the whole thing in detail and very boring. Okay, then encourager, I'm just kidding. The encourager says, it was such a beautiful dessert and next time it'll be even better. You know anybody like that in this church? Of course you do. The giver says, listen, I'll be happy to buy a new dessert. If it costs over $100, I'll give the first $90 and if everybody else gives a dollar, we'll get it done. The administrator says, Jim, I need you to get the mop. Sue, I need you to find another dessert. Uh, Bob, I need you to go get some plates. Susan, I need you to do this. They get everything organized and together. The mercy shower is usually over in the corner crying, but the mercy shower says, I've dropped so many desserts in my life as well, trying to empathize with the person that messed up. Okay, so those are the seven gifts. Here's what you do. I have 84 questions, okay? 84 questions. With every question, there's an answer sheet on page five. What you do is you put a zero, two, four, or six next to each answer. So you read question one, and then when it says number one, uh, six is almost always, or a zero is almost never. Okay? Zero, two, four, six. Everybody see that on page five? You sure? I don't want to go on there. Everybody got it. After you fill out the 84 questions, which are very fun, you can do with your spouse, do with your kids. It's very exciting. Then you add them up. See the different columns. And whatever the highest two or three numbers are, those are your top gifts, A, B, C, D, E, F, or G. And A, B, C, D, F, or G are on the first page. Then what I did was I got you a bunch of characteristics to help you understand your gift. You go to the page that has your particular highest gift. And I also list some ways of how you can misuse your gift. And that's very exciting to do with your spouse. Very exciting. That's actually the best part of the whole handout. 
is when you find out what your spouse is and help them see how they misuse the gift that God gave them. Okay, very, very exciting. Okay, so that's what you do this week. Teenagers do it, and you'll be studying this at youth. I encourage you to do it with your short groups. Now let me close my sermon. Take a look on the screen. That's how you find your gift, okay? But how do you find your purpose? Are you ready? Say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, what I'm about to give you is the most important five minutes of your entire life on planet Earth. It might not be the most exciting five minutes, but is the most truthful and important five minutes of your life. Half of you in this room are going to think, I don't really believe it. The other half of you are going to think, wow, that's amazing. And I shouldn't have done half because there's probably 5% of you that are going to be like, that's exactly the truth and I know that's how it works. Okay, So I'm going to give you an equation to help you find your specific purpose on planet Earth. And it's very easy. God does not make things difficult. If you think God makes things difficult, you don't understand God. He makes it very simple. Okay, So here's the equation. Number one, you have to do this. Join a church family. The most important decision you'll make above everything, marriage, job, college, everything, is the church that God has called you to. It's Genesis to Revelation. It's very important you find a church that teaches you how to pray, how to hear from God, how to understand the Bible. And I want you to see something about the Word of God. You need to find a church where the Word is preached and taught in short groups in Sunday school and Sunday morning, where it's so high and so truthful that every time you hear the word, you think, i got to have Jesus in my life. If you go to a church where the word is watered down and you feel comfortable with sin, you're actually not in the New Testament church. You're just in a group of people that are talking and hanging out. A New Testament church has the word in such a truthful and gracious manner that you realize, I can't do it without Jesus. No matter what you battle, homosexuality, heterosexual sexuality, marriage, impatience, greed, lust, um, um, hatred, anger, unforgiveness, whatever you battle, you should not feel comfortable with sin in the presence of God and His Word. You should feel loved and like God wants you to grow and you need God to grow. If you go to a church where the Word is preached at a level that says, oh, you're doing fine and everything's okay and God loves you, period, then you're never going to grow. So why should you even go? I mean, if, if, if you already accomplished everything and the word's down here where you're at, why should you even go to church? What's the point? I mean, you're, you're, you've already, you might as well go ahead and die because you already fulfilled your destiny. No, it takes Jesus and the grace of God every single day to help us. Everybody understand that, right? Okay, good. So um, go join a church. It's in every chapter in the New Testament, especially those. Here's the second thing. Well, let me go back. No, still go back. Go back first. The other reason you join a church is you learn how to hear from God and understand the word so that you can respect the fact that you can hear from God and that other people can hear from God. Because that means when you realize you learn how to hear from God's word, you don't have to try to change people or manipulate people or force people to grow. You just got to get them in a place where they can hear the word and understand it. Okay, so you can respect. Everybody say respect. Okay, here's the second thing you got to do. And I'm telling you just like I'm telling my children. Okay, don't be upset. You have to be a tither and you have to learn how to forgive. And here's why. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible says there's two things that can steal your heart away from Jesus more than anything else. Money and unforgiveness. Jesus preached about money more than any other subject. Just read the Gospels. Amazing. You would have not gone to Jesus' church because he preached about money every fourth sermon. Because he knew if there's anything on planet earth that has the heart to take me from my family, from God, from my service, it's going to be money and unforgiveness. So you have to learn how to be a faithful tither, and you have to learn how to forgive offenses, forgive wrongs, don't live with anger, bitterness, resentment, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
Uh, the reason that you want to do this is because the Bible says where your treasure is, your heart is also. And a lot of people think, well, they have such a good heart. No, might, they might be nice, but they don't have a good heart. Biblically, they don't. Biblically, your heart's right when, you're, when you don't love money and you're a faithful tither and when you learn how to forgive on a daily basis. And all of us need to learn that on a daily basis. Okay. Number three is this. You need to serve with your gift. Once you discover your gift, it's not about your talent. Your talent might get you a position, but your gift is what makes room for you, the Bible says. There's a big difference between talent and gift. Your gift from God, you can be anywhere. You can use your talent or not, and still that gift is in operation. So serve and use your gift, and then I promise you with all my heart, one day you'll step in and realize, wow, I'm fulfilling the purpose that God has for my life. Now, wouldn't it be so cool if you could find a church somewhere that taught you how to hear from God and understand his word and respect that about other people as well. A church that focused on getting your finances right and teaching you how to forgive. And a church that required you to serve in some capacity. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amen. Do you realize, I just want you to realize that this entire church is focused. And we say it every single Sunday. God has a plan for my life. I'm anointed. And I'll fulfill my destiny. Can you, do you realize that you're in a place that's called to help you be fulfilled before you die? I'm going to make the same promise I made to my, my wife and kids, and then I'll let you go. Um, and my kids know this about me. And when, when I married my wife, I, I told her the same thing. If you'll do these things faithfully, then I'll use every single ounce of energy, money, contacts, whatever I have. To help you find and fulfill your purpose on earth. If you'll do this. I promise you. I don't care. You can come to me and say. John Paul. I feel like God wants us to, um, to start a ministry. Where we uh, build log cabins. Out in the woods for the homeless. I'll say okay. Even if it's not from God. If you think it's from God. I'm going to do everything I can. to help. I'll call in favors from people. I'll use every dollar I have. I'll find the right contacts. Hook you up with this person. This person can train you. I'll do whatever it takes. Anything and everything that you think God wants you to do. If you do this, I'll give every ounce of being that I have to see it fulfilled in your life. Ephesians 5.16, live purposefully, making the most of the time. Do not live vague and thoughtless, but for heaven's sakes, find out what the Lord wants you to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, that's the conclusion of our series. We are done.